Welcome to the Neander Art Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Howley. From the caves and rock shelters of Europe and the Near East, new evidence is emerging that the ancient people we now know as Neanderthals did not simply scrape by and live in a delicate balance between ape and man, but surrounded themselves with creations of art and culture that we used to think were the exclusive domain of modern humans. Join us in conversation with the experts who are making these discoveries and revolutionizing our ideas about the world of Neander art. We're talking today with Dr. Thomas Hewson. He's an emeritus professor of theology at Marquette University, and he explored uh, at Neander Art the context of Neanderthal symbolism and Neanderthal spirituality. Are they necessarily related? Does one lead to the other? So we'll explore those ideas today. Tom, thanks for joining us. You're more than welcome. I'm happy to have a chance to talk with you, uh, Andrew, and about this uh, subject matter. Great. Well, you know, a lot of times in conversations about either uh, religion or spirituality or about early hominids, uh, there's usually a pretty strong wall built up between those two subjects. What made you as a theologian interested in exploring paleoanthropology? Well, that's an excellent question, really kind of two questions there. Um, What got me into it is just, I suppose, the simple human curiosity about our human forebears, uh, which in evolutionary terms we can push back (laughs) many, many millennia, even if we get back to Homo erectus at, uh, you know, maybe just under two million years ago. And so I wonder about our fellowship with them. I feel that we are all more deeply connected uh, than science can account for, really, but I am looking for the science to uh, either confirm or make me modify that kind of hypothetical position. So that's kind of my, my overall interest. The Neanderthals in particular, because there's so much been research that's been done, so many archaeological excavations, so much has been written, naturally one, one is drawn to that. And then so I started reading on that and then found uh, an online note about this conference in Turin and uh, sent in a proposal and they accepted it to my surprise. So that's how I got connected with the whole thing. I think the wall is a mental wall, not a a wall within the reality of Neanderthals, but it's, if anything, a a division of labor and of um, specialization on how we interpret, uh, let's say, Neanderthal fossils or uh, traces of their uh, culture, their material culture, which are, you know, things like red ochre markings and that sort of thing, the uh, Brunacal cave arranged uh, stalagmites, other signs of deliberate human markings and uh, arrangements and that sort of thing. Um, you can measure all of those and you can uh, you know, offer a time, a date, a place, but you can't offer an interpretation of their meaning until you consider them symbols. And really that's something I learned from um, J. Wenzel van Hoisting's wonderful book, uh, Alone in the World, Human Uniqueness in Science and Theology. And really, there's a, a huge amount done on symbolism. And um, once you get to symbols in this view, you're right at religion, spirituality, I prefer in this context. So, as you said, kind of the scientific approach and the theological approach are kind of a division of labor. And It isn't so much a division between science and theology as between, let's say, the, the scientific method and a more a broadly humanistic approach where you're interpreting sociological, philosophical, or whatever. As you described, you know, there's kind of a distinction that we have in kind of the tools that we use to look at and think about 
the people of the past, you know, kind of whether we're looking at just the material remains or whether we're trying to interpret those and understand a bit about their internal experience. Yes, so I I would say there's a a huge advance that this conference built upon and took really took a step forward in uh, in really acknowledging that there is symbolic material culture from Neanderthals and then attempting to, uh, in many cases, try to fathom what it might mean, could mean, that sort of thing. Yeah, because you can't you can't verify a cult an, an interpretation like you can verify that let's say the uh, the time and, and place and um, you know measurements. So as we're looking at interpreting Neanderthal symbolism uh, and trying to understand their spirituality, you draw some distinctions and correlations between spirituality and religion. So can you make those distinctions clear for us? Yes, I mean either would do as long as each could be uh, properly understood and, and defined. Um, religion in the modern West at the end of uh, you know 500 years of secularization has come to be a compartment of life, a zone of activity, a highly visible and organized set of practices, uh, formulated doctrines, institutions, etc. Actually, religion um, is uh, sort of has a depth level that that doesn't capture. But because it is so prevalent, uh, it's easy to think we're asking about Neanderthals in reference to our understanding of religion instead of investigating what might theirs have been, which would be obviously so much different. And um, as someone remarked about hunter-gatherers being uh, shamanistic, that is having these figures who could mediate the spirit world or mediate between the spirit world and ordinary life of the people, the societies were oriented by that. It wasn't just a little compartment of religion that they turned to periodically. Every day was contact with the sacred. So I think spirituality kind of captures that a little better. That gets at another structure that I saw to your presentation, which was looking at this in kind of two different ways. Both, what can we kind of piece together about the possibilities of Neanderthal's spirituality and their vision of, you know, some other realm or other dimension to life? And then also with our modern beliefs in different religions or spiritualities, how can we incorporate Neanderthals into those paradigms, given this kind of realization that they were a lot more like us than we thought before? Yeah, I think that's very interesting in the context of religious pluralism. Um, I would say this, that uh, in the tradition of modern theology, um, there is a characteristic human condition, call it ontological contingence or absolute dependence. We kind of wake up, as it were, we become conscious in the midst of a world that we ourselves didn't produce and upon which we depend for water, food, everything else, and our existence. And so there's that basic human condition understood as having a religious aspect because we're not the source, but what is the source? Where did everything come from? How come it's here? That sort of thing. So the experience of the holy, Bernard Lonergan's uh, development of it, is that um, there's sort of a universal human apprehension uh, of that condition. And in that response, there is a love for the source, but it's mixed with fear and misunderstanding, you know, all the problematic elements of religion get mixed in there. Uh, But nonetheless, there is something there. So I would say an understanding of religion as spirituality gives us a platform on which, um, you know, we could entertain the possibility of Neanderthal spirituality as something not entirely opposite of what we know as religion, but but considerably different. Mm -hmm. Just as we would say uh, any ancient people's approach to to God, God's spirit, the spirit world, right. what is more than what we see every day, uh, you know, would be different, but there, there is some commonality. And so uh, your, your question is very interesting because it, 
underlines the fact that this whole new gain in knowledge about the Neanderthals underlines that uh, we and they are, I would say, have no hesitation saying fellow human beings. Not that long ago that people would not have said that. Absolutely not. And I'm sure there's still some that would feel differently, but it's definitely the the growing realization and uh, perspective that these really are just other parts of our family and that there really is much more continuity between us and them. Something that you said about kind of that dawn of a realization that you live in a world made by something other than you makes me wonder whether it was kind of this early significant tool use and modification of the world around us that was kind of the dawn of that inkling. I think so. Yes, I do think so. And, and, uh, you know, as uh, You've seen the paper where I have doubt called into doubt the division between tools and art or symbols, which is is commonly used. And precisely, once modifying the natural environment, as we would say, but changing the world, the physical world, starts taking place, yes, I do think there's something very profound that happens at that moment. You know, the uh, the Greek uh, myth of Prometheus was that he stole fire from heaven. Well, people had to wonder about how did, how did we get to use fire? Well, their, their idea was that Prometheus, the, the hero, stole it. Well, but there was a divine, as it were, source. Mm-hmm. So even coming to use fire, what, a, what an enormous advance. And then to be able to strike a fire at need rather than, you know, wait for a, a lightning storm or something. Right. Uh, quite amazing. And tools, exactly as you say. I, I think there, there's something going on there uh, that's very, very basic and in that sense profound. And I would say uh, indicative of a, uh, to use your phrase, I like it, a dawning spirituality, meaning yeah. a, com- a sort of a, a relationship to everything. Yeah, so it's interesting how these really practical material practices of, you know, making stone tools, starting a fire, building a shelter, right. start to awaken our attention to the fact that, well, all of this had to come from somewhere. Where is that? Yes, that's right. And and also, like with the tools, as I uh, mentioned in the, uh, in the paper, uh, some of them are, are very beautiful. And most people who write about these things think that the aesthetic is really, really um, primordial in our relationship to the sacred. Uh, that the sacred and the beautiful are, are very, very much um, associated. So if you've got beautiful hand axes, and we, there are some, then you've got something that's quite significant in its own right as more than a tool. And in fact, in the uh, Cima de los Huesos in Atapuerca, in, uh, northern Spain, a huge, huge excavation that's been going on for you know at least a decade or more, um, they found uh, human remains with a, an unused but very beautifully fashioned and colored hand axe, which was considered to be a grave deposition. So the uh, something that was, as it were, sacred enough to be uh, associated with human remains was, was, in fact, beautiful as well. So you talked also a little bit about the crossover between the useful and the beautiful, giving examples of, you know, a Versace dress is, yeah, it's very practical, it's clothing, but it's also clearly done from a very aesthetic perspective. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, before the presentation, I talked with the uh, the people at the registration desk at the dormitory where I was staying. I was trying to find an example of something local to Turin uh, rather than Milan, with whom they have a, a sort of a strange relationship. Uh, and so I wanted to get an, uh, an automotive designer or company like Ferrari or Lamborghini or some a company that was producing really, really beautiful uh, cars, mm-hmm. but unfortunately uh, those were made elsewhere, I think. <laughs> but uh, a man named Bertoni from Turin designed uh, a number of very beautiful cars produced by Pinin and 
arena. But yeah, that's right. Cars, clothing, almost everything. There can be a beautiful version of it. I think of Frank Lloyd Wright's architecture uh, here in Wisconsin and elsewhere, the Falling Water House, one of the great pieces of architecture in the world, I think, in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Just a, a, a work of beauty. So what is it that makes that connection between making things beautiful and having some kind of spirituality or belief in something higher or other than the thing itself? Well, I guess I guess the answer is, is in that question is precisely... Uh, in, in beauty, uh, whether we apprehend it uh, in something else or that people produce, is beyond our immediate, let's say, needs for food, clothing, and shelter, and water, and companionship. And that. The beautiful and our uh, relation to it is almost internal testimony to something spiritual. Uh, it's, uh, I don't know how and why that that's i mean emmanuel kant had a whole thing on but but yes it's it's often been associated with it and you think of uh, beautiful churches and that sort of thing temples they've always been uh, rather beautiful hans georg Gadamer, a great german philosopher said that when we go back and look at the columns the ionic columns and greek temples and that sort of thing we look at it in terms of formal beauty proportions and that sort of thing whereas for them it was a sacred reality Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they didn't divorce the uh, spiritual and the uh, beautiful. So we have a problem because we have them divorced. You know, yeah. we have art and then we have religion. Well, really, there may be some deep interconnections there that, that we tend to overlook. That's really interesting. Some of the other conversations that we've been having from the Neander Art Conference have gotten around, uh, you know, okay, so these are symbols. It's it's a non-functional marking but is it art you know there's a real difference between something well is it a design or is it art and you kind of yeah you, you start to realize that it's really just about how we're defining these terms and how we see them it is and and that is one of the huge tasks in any interpretation is to be self-critical of our modern preconceptions or postmodern preconceptions for that matter mm-hmm. um, so art and margaret uh, an author an expert named margaret conkey wrote a wonderful piece on why, not with Neanderthals, but the later Cro-Magnons, or early modern humans in Europe, who did the fabulous paintings or yeah. imagery in the caves. Um, to, it's a mistake to call that art, because art for us has all the connotations of being um, a separate segment of life. It's housed in museums or private mm-hmm. collections. It's, it's the beautiful disconnected from other things. It's all that. But for them, probably not. Right, and so, as you said earlier with... Um cathedrals it's it's the same way you know um when you think of the painted caves they'll often say you know like you go into the cave and it's like a cathedral for these people yeah and then you stop and think about it you're like well that was there first caves with paintings of bison were were there long before anybody built a cathedral and it's maybe more like our cathedrals are recreating this uh this experience that we had before which is this that's wonderful I totally, I share that intuition with you. Yes, I think you're right. Uh, and then, of course, it gets to the question, of, at least for me, why I like Romanesque rather over Gothic cathedrals, because it retains that. In It's a little more like a cave, if you like, because it doesn't try to pierce the rock with light. It just lets the rock and stone be stone. And, you know, these are conjectures, but I think it's an interesting and worthwhile conjecture. I think that's one of the great things that we saw come out of the Neander Art Conference was a real confluence of people from different disciplines, uh, able to look at this material from new perspectives and have meaningful conversations about it, despite coming from really different starting places. Very much, very much.
much, Andrew. And I think there was a, a, a social dynamic. I became friends with a lot of people. Uh, and I think the collegiality, not only in the expert knowledge that was shared and communicated and, and absorbed, I hope, uh, but also just the human friendship in that uh, was quite remarkable. That's great. Well, seeing all of these things come together in one great, rich, layered human experience, I think our Neanderthal ancestors would be proud. Uh, well, that's, yeah, they, they were, you know, they did tend to live in small groups, it seems. So their contact with one another, I think, is an area that needs, you know, further exploration. How, how much communication would there be among Neanderthals, even in, let's say, Western Europe, much less with some in Eastern Europe, what is now Eastern Europe or, or uh, Central Asia? One other area I think needs uh, or would benefit from further investigation is the result of histor modern historical consciousness would, would make a person wonder if Neanderthals had symbolism and had a spirituality, uh, how far back does that go? Did they sort of carry it on from their predecessor variation in humanity called Homo heidelbergensis? Were there thousands of years before Neanderthals on which they drew? You know, were they in kind of lockstep with people uh, hundred or two hundred thousand years before them. How far? How far back can we go? Yeah, if our our physical body didn't change, you know, leaps and bounds in individual discrete steps, but was really a kind of a continuum of of morphing through the ages, um, and we right. see more that our abilities and our and our even our our culture all did kind of change gradually like this. So there may not be a hard line that we could ever point to, and everybody does pull something from the generations before them. Exactly. So we might have to say, well, it's not only Neanderthal symbolism and spirituality, but uh, human going how far back, you know. Okay, well, Tom, thank you very much for taking the time uh, and sharing your thoughts and reflections with us today. Oh, Best you're more than welcome, Andrew. Thank you very much for inviting me to, uh, to discuss these things with you. And thanks for very interesting questions. My pleasure. The conversations featured on the NeanderArt podcast stem from the presentations and ideas shared at the inaugural NeanderArt conference held at the campus Luigi Inaudi at the University of Turin in Italy. The conference was organized by CESMAP with the scientific partnership of the International Union of Prehistoric and Protohistoric Sciences and the International Federation of Rock Art Organizations.